Hey listeners, Dennis here. Admittedly, I live in a bubble, and that's not a humble brag, nor is it a pass for ignorance. My home state of California is rapidly changing, and it's rather frightening to witness these sudden changes and the eventual impact it will leave behind. For instance, the latest news pits Jump, the electric scooter company owned by Uber, against the Los Angeles Department of Transportation. Because Jump will not adhere to LADOT's conditional permit program, the company may lose the opportunity to service all Angelinos. And that gets to the heart of today's episode. Jump, as a private company with their own private assets, is not willing to comply with the data sharing agreement that has been outlined by LADOT's pilot program called the Dockless On-Demand Personal Mobility Conditional Permit. This pilot program is intended to understand dockless on-demand technology and the implications on the city and its residents. But Jump, along with the Center for Democracy and Technology, allege that there are other serious risks to the collection and sharing of this data to LADOT, including, but not limited to, Fourth Amendment violations that may personally identify and incriminate users of Jump's platform. These contentious times call for greater discussions between the private and public sector. Having documented his travels around the world and analyzing the different modes of transportations, our guest is at the center of these public-private partnerships. In addition to this episode, you can get to know Mr. John Rassant through his new book, Hop, Skip, Go, which will be available on November 12th, and you can also witness the power of his network through the event Comotion LA. So stay tuned. Listeners, are you interested in hearing from business executives, technologists, venture capitalists, government leaders, and more? I know I am. As a listener of this show, we want to extend to you a discount to attend Comotion LA. You know me, I love discounts. Comotion LA brings together the brave new world of the urban mobility revolution on Thursday, November 14, and Friday, November 15 in downtown Los Angeles' row. Through curated discussions, expert meetings, press conferences, and happy hours, the event will bring together key players across disciplines and industries to emerge with new policy and innovation mandates for a more connected, innovative, and sustainable urban future. Hot damn. Wisco Weekly listeners can receive a 20% discount off the price of admission. Visit comotionla.com, C-O-M-O-T-I-O-N-L-A.com. Reserve your tickets and add the promo code WISCO20 to receive 20% off. That's WISCO20, W-I-S-C-O-2020, to get 20% off, which will save you a couple hundred bucks. Thanks to Comotion LA for extending this discount to WISCO Weekly listeners. Again, use promo code WISCO20 at online checkout and get 20% off admission. I do hope to see you there. And if you do see me there, please come say hello. Now, let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. 
Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitaite, willkommen and welcome to Wisco Weekly. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode. This is the podcast that is showcasing the new business models for the mobility of people and goods. I am your host, Dennis Wisco. On today's episode, actually, before we get to today's episode, uh, I, I want to give a proper recognition and shout out to firefighters. Here in the state of California, we are undergoing a lot of wildfires at this moment, and I can't help but think about the safety of these firefighters as they put their lives on the line to save these structures that, that you know, us as citizens have, have made a home out of. And perhaps actually that is a good segue into what today's episode is about in kind of this new mobility revolution and this urbanization of places like Los Angeles. And so, you know, listeners, today's guest can be best described at this moment in time through the launch of his book, Hop, Skip, Go, How the Mobility Revolution is Transforming Our Lives, which will be released on November 12th. You can say that this book may be the culmination of all of his work from his journalism days at Business Week to event production of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, to currently serving as the founder and chairman of the New Cities Foundation. Hop, Skip, Go is about the billions of people on the move, underlying each stage of mobility from foot to horse to cars and jets are the mathematics of three fundamental variables, time, space, and money. My guest and his co-author and business journalist, Stephen Baker, look beyond the false promises of the past to examine the real future of transportation and the repercussions for the world's cities and the global economy. Upon graduating from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a bachelor's in history, my guest attended the American University in Cairo, where he learned the language and culture of the Arabic world. He speaks four languages, Arabic, English, French, and Italian, men, women, and children. Please welcome to the show, Mr. John Rossant. Thanks, Dennis. Mr. John Rossant. I love your last name, sir. I love your accent. <laughs> it's going to get real personal in you here, sir. It. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, John, uh, first off, I want to thank you for being on the show. I, I think that based on some of my research of, of all the things that you're currently doing, not just serving as the co-founder of New Cities, but you're the CEO of CoMotion LA, and we'll get to talk about yep. that event coming up. Yep. Um, you're also involved with the Mobility Open Blockchain Initiative. And again, Bravo, we'll probably- Moby. T- yeah. Moby, we'll, we'll talk about yeah. that a little bit. Um, but before we get to all this stuff, how can people follow you, John? Well, people follow me in- Many different ways. Uh, they can go to uh, our website, commotion.com. Okay. Uh, and uh, one of the things you mentioned is Commotion LA, and that is the big conference that we organize every November, mid November. So it's coming up real soon, November 14th and 15th, called Commotion LA. And Commotion LA brings together leaders of the mobility revolution from around the world, and they they come to Los Angeles, around 2,000 of them. Um, people ranging from mayors, um, the, the mayor of Lisbon or the mayor of uh, Bologna, Italy. Uh, I love CEOs. your accent there. <laughs> well, I'm married to an Italian. So, <laughs> uh, CEOs of, of, of 
big companies, of OEMs, but also of startups and uh, early stage companies that are in the mobility innovation space. In, in your description, you really are the personification of a P3. <laughs> of a public-private partnership. I mean, all the things, that, all the individuals well, you just Well, I don't just know if I'm the personification, but we believe in P3 because we believe that the future of mobility really lies in cooperation between public and private. And so the old model, in a sense, which is not that old, was for uh, an Uber, let's say, uh, talking about six or seven years ago, or two years ago, a bird coming out of uh, Santa Monica kind of just arriving in a city, kind of setting the rules. City officials are really unaware of what they're doing, um, have no way to, uh, there's no regulatory framework for these things. That's all changing. I think cities are becoming active actors rather than passive actors in terms of mobility. And the future, as I said, belongs to cooperation between public and private. Because after all, an Uber, a bird, or a drone company, or Lyft, use public rights of way yep, yep. in cities. And so we have, and you know, the public, the uh, public sector controls the rights of way. So we have to have an understanding between the two. It's very, very important. You're absolutely right. And I, I think this is one of the things that I hopefully am trying to contribute to myself, um, though certainly it, it becomes challenging just because the cooperation sometimes gets mixed between a mentality that is still playing, for instance, on the public sector, the political game, and the private sector where, you know, of course, they're going to just try to monetize anything and everything, yeah, right? And so, maximize profits. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. like, in the case you're talking about with when it comes to Uber or Bird, I mean, two perfect examples that have disrupted the mo yeah. mobility space. Yeah. and. Now you do have state and federal, well, probably more state governments and agencies looking to see how they can, A, understand it and B, be a part of it. Yeah. I don't know if we'll go get down this road or go down this path just yet, but you know, this is where one of the things that I feel very passionate about uh, in terms of uh, state legislation is Assembly Bill 5. And I'm very, very torn on that legislation because on one hand, you're curtailing, uh, you know, the rights of independent workers. Yeah. But while on one hand, I do understand and I, and I understand and sympathize the idea that this gig economy that Uber has progressed has made a lot of individual citizens um, not sure of where their place is in this world. And so therefore, then you these social safety nets of, of healthcare and whatnot need to be provided for. And that's kind of what the state is trying to do. But I mean, I guess this maybe begs a bigger question then, John, in, in that since you've been studying cities for so long, like why is why is all of this happening now? Why why is this mobility revolution happening in two thousand you know two thousand fourteen till now, and and where is this going to lead us next? Yeah. Well, that's that's the sixty four gazillion dollar question. I think. I mean, the mobility revolution is happening now because of the confluence of a few factors. One is certainly the internet and connectivity revolution, which allows objects, in this case, cars or scooters or drones uh, the day after tomorrow, to be connected in a network. And so that allows then for uh, a bird or an Uber or a Lyft or any kind of connected mobility service. So that is, that is, that is a very, very big shift. Um, the other thing is that we are willy-nilly exiting the hydrocarbon age, finally, thank God. 
and it's sort of defined, you know, the world since certainly the First World War, or just before the First World War, when Winston Churchill, who was the uh, first lord of the Admiralty in Great Britain, mm-hmm. which had the world's largest navy, made the decision to shift the um, fuel of the Royal Navy from coal to oil. And that was because that. the Britain, Britain had India, and they had Iraq, and the uh, great oil reserves of the Middle East were starting to come on stream. And so he saw this ocean of cheap oil. It was a great strategic move. But it really then led to the motor car and everything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could have gone, you know, what people don't realize is a hundred odd years ago when motor cars were still, where Henry Ford was starting to mass produce motor cars, we could have chosen electric cars. Electric cars were there competing with the first gasoline cars. And then because of this sort of wave of cheap oil, that sort of solved that equation. But we could have gone electric much earlier. So there's the connectivity revolution, the fact that we're exiting the hydrocarbon age, we're moving very quickly to zero emission fuels, a zero emission economy. And then uh, just other kinds of technology that are enabling uh, uh, in manufacturing. That, uh, For example, to manufacture a car now, you don't necessarily need to spend $2 billion on a car factory, which mm-hmm. is sort of the minimum price tag for a car factory five or 10 years ago. Now you can sort of produce cars with much smaller quantities very economically because of robotics and automation and things like that. So there's a big change happening. It's, it's what, what's generally known as the fourth industrial revolution. And so you have all of these things happening at the same time. And then you add also the Chinese economy, uh, and they've clearly made the decision several years ago to be number one in electric uh, and, transportation. And, and and part of that too, right, they've also, in the policies coming down from the government, they've also provided these, you know, greater level of subsidies for electric vehicles. Yeah. But but if I recall, um, those subsidies will be going away at some point. Yeah. And, you know, that that's kind of the case here in the United States too, where, you know, we do subsidize electric vehicles. Do you worry yourself if electric vehicles could stand on their own without the subsidy? Um, no, because I think that, um, in fact, buying decisions now, in the United States anyway, uh, don't depend on the subsidies. You know, the underlying cost of electric vehicles is coming down rapidly and continues to come down because the cost of batteries is coming down. And that's the biggest determinants of batteries. Um, and they're going to continue to go down. So we're really getting to um, not only cost parity, but also price parity. So in the sense that the cost of owning an electric car now is a lot cheaper than owning a gasoline car. Sure. Um, less parts is in there as well. Yeah, and the, the fuel costs less, et cetera. And less parts, less damage. You know, you can have an EV, an electric vehicle, for a million miles, mm. and you won't have that much wear and tear, but it's unthinkable to have a internal combustion engine car with a million miles. I mean, you'll, you'll have to rebuild the engine, I don't know how many times. Right, right. So, and there are a lot of costs like that. But also just the, 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 the sticker price is starting to come down. So, you know, I mean, I'm actually in the market now. I'm probably, I will get a Tesla Model 3. Um, I don't want to... <laughs> make an ad for anybody, but I like that car. 
And it's John, you, know, you won't make pretty... the ad, but but I will. So listeners, uh, if you're hearing this, and specifically if you're a Tesla dealer, I will put you in touch with John. Because <laughs> there you go. John is ready. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, that's so that, it's, that, that it's goes you know to... it's 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 a very competitive price to a internal combustion engine car. So. And certainly, I, I think what's going to be interesting is that the the uh, you know Americans penchant for SUVs and specifically the the bigger SUVs. I wonder if that does start to wane when you do finally start to have a Tesla Model 3 that is actually a pretty well-sized car, but it's still cool looking. I mean, it still speaks to the emotional part, right? Like you but could, it's, not a, it's not an SUV. It's not and an that's SUV. And that's why someone like, uh, and here I will make a, a, a an ad, not really, uh, for my friend R.J. Scarringe, okay. who is the CEO and founder of Rivian. Oh, which is I love Rivian. Aren't they great? Super great. So he, you know, he had what what intuition to figure out that what the world needs or what Americans need right now is yeah. a really great electric SUV, and that's what they're coming out with. And he had that insight kind of before a lot of other people did, and certainly before Elon Musk. Yeah, Rivian is certainly a game changer, right? Because I think one of the elements about the adoption or, or the mass adoption of electric vehicles is the fact that with consumers are still a little bit leery, right? Yeah. However, you can get more businesses to subscribe to, you know, buying electric vehicles or, or having an electric fleet. And so as such is the case with Amazon, having now purchased so many vehicles from, from Rivian and hopefully proving this model. Right. Uh, I, I think this also kind of gets us into another territory, which maybe you can shed some 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 light on, and, and that is, with more electric vehicles on the road, you will be one of these people eventually here when you get your Model Three. Is that electric vehicles, quote unquote, do not pay their fair share, right? You have uh, internal combustion vehicles that pay the gas tax, which help uh. fund infrastructure. Electric vehicles do not do that just yet. What do you see as a as as a mechanism for? I mean, I, I I know the mechanism eventually will be essentially some kind of vehicle miles travel or a mileage tax. Do you see that happening very soon? That's a good question, and I, I honestly I don't know how to answer it, and I don't know if anybody has a really good answer. I think one of the reasons is we don't yet understand how precipitous will be the drop off in gasoline tax revenue. So we don't know, you know, how quickly people will, you know, they're starting to buy more EVs as more come in the market. But, you know, people still buy a lot of gasoline, and so we right. still have those gasoline taxes. So that won't be the case. I don't know what the answer is. Hmm. I mean, they'll have to tax, you know, electric, obviously. Well, if, if, if it's not uh, a, a mileage tax per se, then certainly in Los Angeles, as what they did in New York, congestion yeah. pricing. Yeah. Another mechanism of funding infrastructure. And we need, I, w- I mean, honestly, as a recent Angelino, I only moved here two and a half years ago. That's right. You came from New York. I came from New York. And um, I certainly would like to see very innovative kinds of congestion pricing uh, here in Los Angeles. Innovative congestion? What, like? Well, I mean, I think, you know, their technology can give us, there are great tools there. So, for example, you don't need, toll booths. You can have optical recognition of uh, license plates, things like that. It can be very, very automated. So you kind of, you have essentially, 
it's a user fee, small user fee for using freeways. And I think, you know, honestly, cars in the 20th century have gotten such a free pass. I mean, you think of the taxpayer dollars that go to freeways and roads and things like that. It's we subsidize cars to an extraordinary extent. Well, I'm reminded of uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson in which he, he did make probably one of the more profound explanations of uh, internal combustion engines and the fact that, you know, if you consider, if you consider the, the, how roads are virtually free or very, very low cost, you have essentially subsidized the internal combustion engine. So, oh, like, yeah. I mean, if you think about then, like, exactly what that has done in, in terms of the proliferation then of yeah. internal combustion engines on the road, like, yeah, it's. Um, I, I guess it was just a matter of time before you did have that mass adoption. Yeah, yeah. But I do worry that with electric vehicles and and potentially, you know, an ongoing subsidy of electric vehicles, would we fall into the same the same narrative of the gas tax having essentially bet against technology? So, you know, when the, the gas tax really didn't allow for, again, proliferation of electric vehicles, I wonder if we would get to that same point with, with electric vehicles that, you know, we, we, don't, we don't allow for hydrogen cell vehicles to also take place. Well, that's, that's a good point. Uh, and actually, I'm a, I'm a big believer in hydrogen mm. fuel cells. Um, and uh, however, I don't think they'll necessarily be, hydrogen is necessarily the answer for um, cars. Mm. Hydrogen, I think, is definitely the answer for um, long-haul trucking, Uh, perhaps even light rail, uh, perhaps even um, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. I don't think it is for cars. I think the electric is still pretty good and will be for a couple of generations. I I think so. And I I think, if anything, it's starting to shape our behaviors, right? Like, I I mean, out of curiosity, you looking to get your electric vehicle, how many miles are you, would you be looking to drive in a given month? Oh, I don't know. But, you know, for example, I, I, you know, I'm only going to use a car in Los Angeles, Mm. you know, so I think, you know, whether it has a range of 150 or 250 miles is kind of immaterial because I'm never going to drive that much during a day. Yeah. And then it'll be charging at night. So, you know, I don't. Look, we are having this conversation also because we live in Southern California and, and, you know, Southern L.A. has the highest percentage of EVs on the road anywhere in the world. You may be starting to be depassed now by sort of Beijing and Shanghai. But if you go the other 40 states uh, and the sort of flyover states, Uh the Midwest, etc., there are no electric vehicles. Well, hopefully that's where that's where Rivian comes in, huh? And hopefully that's where Rivian comes in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, there really aren't. I mean, if you go on the road in sort of Texas or certainly in Michigan, you will not see an electric vehicle on the road. There are no Teslas, no Bolts, no Volts. Yeah, yeah. Nada. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so I mean, you you've been around the world, John, and um, you've seen a lot of cities and their their transportation culture, yeah. right? Everything that would that yep. would be included in their transportation culture, you know, at, without, or at least giving uh, listeners a preview of your book, you know, what are some of those, experience those world experiences that are have been translated into your book? Well, we talk a lot. You know, one of the things we do in the book, uh, in Hop, Skip, and Go, is we look at 
several different global cities in different continents. So we look at Helsinki in Finland. Um, we look at Guangzhou in China. We look at Paris. Um, we certainly look at Los Angeles. And these are all very sort of different use cases in, in some ways. Um, Europeans and Asians get transit in a much more fundamental way than we Americans do in the sense that if you go to Paris, for example, there's um, not only this amazing underground metro system that is, you know, wherever you are in Paris, you're no more than a half mile walk or even a quarter mile walk from metro station. It can take you everywhere very cheaply, very quickly, quicker than driving. Mm -hmm. There's a seamless integration between that metro system and the state rail system. So if I want to go from Paris to you know, somewhere in the country, I take a metro to a train station and then just walk several feet, great signage, et cetera. It's completely different here. It kind of goes back to the connectivity you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it may, maybe, not, maybe not the the internet connectivity here, but just the the connectivity of these kind of different modes of transportation. Well, we have, you know, we have in our country, for better or for worse, and I'm not making no value judgment, we have a much more kind of laissez-faire uh, culture where we don't have state capitalism. We don't, the role of the state is much less in terms of determining industrial policy and things like that. So taxpayers aren't willing to pay for things like very developed uh, public transportation systems, unfortunately. Uh -huh. you know? uh -huh. um, we tend to let the private sector do it more in this country. Do you, do you foresee that changing in this like urbanization? Because on one hand, like I would, you know, I, I would subscribe to, you know, I, congestion pricing. I would subscribe to that. I, so I do subscribe to that, right? Because I think that if I, the user, am paying for services of the road in this case, if that, and if that's what it's going to, that's yeah. great. I think all of a sudden it gets, the lines get blurred when all of a sudden these fees are not being uh, applied to the actual usage of, of me the user right so like for instance right. if the toll money is essentially not being applied to the roads but it is being applied to mass transit right i think that's always the big argument of of how it's difficult to get buy-in for toll lanes and congestion yeah. pricing yeah. and i know washington is the state of washington is dealing with this right now i uh, know i think that's all true um but you know my worry i think you know sort of what keeps me up at night is that you know, people really believe in individual car ownership in this country. I mean, in, in, in and in this part of the world, the, I mean, yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen people. It's the equivalent. It's the California equivalent of the Second Amendment for for <laughs> yeah. for, for, for Oklahomans. Let's say that's right. Um, and you know, I've just seen people. You know, you will never. I have a God-given right to own a car and right. drive it wherever I want, whenever I want, etc. No government's going to tell me otherwise. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean that day maybe kind of over in, uh, at some point. Well, I guess, yeah, can you elaborate? How, how do you see that changing then in in a, in a LA, let's say specifically mobility revolution? You know, what is the balance of cooperation between public and private sector? Well, look, I think it's a cultural shift and a generational shift. And so one thing when we talked earlier about, you know, what are the factors that uh, are going into this 
you know, making this mobility revolution a reality. One thing that I forgot to mention is just a generational thing yeah. in which you have a younger generation, millennials, who simply don't believe uh, as much as geezers like me in private property and in, in, in owning your own, owning everything. It's very true. So younger people have a much different attitude towards um, sharing, towards ownership, et cetera. So the idea of hopping in a Hopping and skipping Uber, and going. Hopping, skipping, going, or in an Uber with four other people, that's fine. You know, because it means you get to, you know, from point A to point B for $4. You know, that's great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's exactly what my kids think. That's how my kids think. So I think there's a shift in sort of a cultural shift going on. I've been trying to process that same logic and playing devil's advocate where could we be selling a an erroneous – bill of goods to millennials and Generation Z that on one hand advocates for, you know, a, a shared economy. Yeah. But on the other hand, that shared economy will, it'll come at a price, right? I mean, if again, if we're talking about things like congestion pricing, if we're talking about a mileage tax in addition to the gas tax, if we're looking at, again, Assembly Bill 5, we're essentially you know, somebody may not be able to work as many hours because Uber won't allow them to because they have to adhere to, right. you know, some legislation. Could we be selling an erroneous bill of goods to millennials and Gen Z that's, on one hand, they do get this mobility revolution, but at the same time, if they want to get out of Los Angeles, per se, their 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 income is not as high as it once was because they're either not earning as much or they're paying too much. Hmm. In, interesting. I don't know, I, 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 I don't know the right un, answer to that. What that question. I mean, look, I think you could make a counter argument that uh, if millennials actually don't have to own, I mean, owning a car is a very expensive very, proposition. Not to mention the depreciation too. And right, depreciation. Right. So it's thousands and thousands mm. of dollars. A year, and so if you're a millennial and say, "Okay, I don't want a car. I'll rely on the sort of sharing economy part to get around," that's resulting in savings that you know he or she millennial will then pump into the economy. Yeah. So it's you know it's I, I don't know. He, he maybe they can then afford a weekend in Las Vegas. Or well, I guess wherever. that yeah. I mean, I think this is this is like the again. I think this is like what the new business models will yeah. eventually teach us. Right. And like you said, it, the success of these business models will come with this new generation that subscribes to a new way of living. Yeah. You know, with regards to your book and your tell me about your, your co-author, Stephen Baker. Stephen Baker is, is uh, just a very old friend. We were together at Business Week magazine. I was the Europe editor and Steve was the technology editor. And we've been sort of best friends for years. So I called him up one day. I said, come on, let's, why don't we collaborate and do a book on the mobility revolution? Um, the book takes the reader all around the world, as I said, to Guangzhou, China, to Paris, to, uh, to Italy, to Helsinki, uh, around the United States. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. And we, we both actually you know, travel quite a lot to do the reporting. Was there, was there anything that maybe surprised you in this journey of, of uh, writing this book? Like, was there a hypothesis that you had that perhaps was 
either disproven or you, know, you had to rethink <laughs> what the you know what the hypothesis was? Not really. I think one of the difficulties uh, was that it's a very very fast moving target. I mean, I mean, mobility by its nature is mobile, but the technologies are changing very very quickly. I mean, to give you an example. When we launched Commotion LA, this big conference that we do here every year, three years ago, there was one mention in passing of urban air mobility. And that is, uh, you know, the ability to, you know, instead of taking a car or a metro, to fly across town to get to your meeting. Um, There's one mention in passing. Last year, there was one panel on it. And there was more discussion this year, uh, in a couple of weeks when we do Commotion LA, there'll be multiple panels on urban air mobility. Uh, there is a very interesting activation that we're uh, organizing um, at Commotion uh, that's uh, Sikorsky helicopter is behind and, and Otis elevator of all people. And they want to demonstrate what it will be like in a very near future and say three or four years in Los That's Angeles soon. when let's say you're downtown and you need to get to Beverly Hills instead of getting in an Uber or driving uh, or taking the metro you'll summon a uh, robotic electric drone effectively that will land somewhere near where you are you'll hop on and it'll next stop Beverly Hills in sort of five minutes and you'll low altitude flight over LA, and there will be thousands and thousands of such flights every day over LA. Especially in these downtown areas of Los Angeles and New York, I yeah. can. I wonder if this kind of, uh, if you're familiar with the movie Fifth Element, yeah, where where basically you know it's it's maybe not even going downstairs to the main floor to now get oh, yes. this drone. It's, yeah, it's yeah. you go outside of your 50 second floor office window, and then you get picked up right there. Well, I think. That, you know, a version of that is what will happen. There's no question about it in my mind. And it'll be, you know, and it won't be $500. It'll be $25 to get to Beverly Hills. And L.A. will be the world center for for a lot of that because it's this uh, polycentric city with, you know, it's very, very spread out, as as you know very, very well. And, you know, 30, 40 miles across, et cetera. Um, within LA itself, there are 20 municipal airports. I mean, there are a lot already, mm-hmm. um, and so I think there will be there will be a lot of activity here. I think it'll be it'll be more difficult, let's say, in Manhattan, where you have you know good public transport plus lots of skyscrapers, which make it a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, Hop Skip Go yeah. comes out November 12th. November 12th, Harper Collins is publishing it. Um, it's coming out in. Chinese, Japanese, Korean, German, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you care to read it in those languages. Oh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm still trying to master the language yeah. of, of Czech, so that's way too hard. Yeah. Why did you decide to write this book, John? Well, we, you know, my, I sensed very clearly that we are at the cusp of a mobility revolution. I think it wasn't, you know, when I began thinking about the book sort of two or three years ago, I think it wasn't, one, it wasn't really accepted you know, that we were entering a mobility revolution, what it was, et cetera, how important it was. I mean, I kind of felt it and saw it, but I wanted to communicate that. And the other thing 
is because I'm in the business. I mean, you know, we, we organize this great big event, Commotion LA, on, on, on future mobility and innovative mobility. One of the things I felt is so interesting. I felt that what we're living through now is a little bit like the dawn of the internet revolution, let's say 30 years ago, when in one garage in Menlo Park, Bill Gates was tinkering with some with, with a motherboard a few streets over steve jobs was doing the same thing and it's a small community of people uh, of, of movers and shakers they tend to know each other but it's it's you feel like in in mobility now as the internet then you had this sense of a small group of pioneers who were really setting the stage for what's to come mm-hmm. And the personalities themselves are so interesting, as as you would think pioneers anywhere are. And are we so, like kind so, of like the like a like a Tony Stark eccentric type Bill, you know? No, no, no. But I think you know, as we mentioned, someone like R.J. Scarringe, mm-hmm. you know, I think in some ways he's you know he's the the Bill Gates of our generation in some ways. Um, I mean, I think the mobility revolution will be as important and as um, transformative as the internet revolution. Yeah. So the people who are driving it are going to be, you know, very important uh, people in our lives going forward. So, uh, you know, there are just a lot of interesting personalities. This, but it, it's still a small enough space that you can kind of grasp it, well, which is what we try to do. And, I mean, you know, you, you point out someone like RJ on the private sector side yeah. and the the eccentric or whatever that word would eccentricity and eccentricity there you go <laughs> um, and so you know it, it's somebody like him that will drive forward and push the envelope of the mobility revolution yeah. how would you also characterize someone on the public sector side what is the mindset that they need to perhaps adopt in order to fuse together both public and private well that's a really good question I think um, you know, by and large, I think uh, we're blessed in Los Angeles, by the way, by having um, someone like Salita Reynolds uh, uh, as head of the Department of Transportation. I mean, she really gets it in a way that very few uh, public sector officials working in transportation get it. I think that more and more public sector officials get it. You know, I would have said that no one got it three or four years ago. Mm. Now you have an increasing number of uh, um, Department of Transit heads across the nation who really understand the future and are, are can talk to um, the head of a ride-sharing app, you know, as an equal in a sense. Yeah, and be familiar with so, the terminology yeah, 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 and the yeah. concepts. I mean, you know, Salida understands data as well as any data scientist mm-hmm. you would you would meet. Yeah, so. and, and I mean, she's, I think the one thing that's very admirable, I don't, again, I don't know anyone else who has done this, but she's been a pioneer in pushing forth the mobi- mobility data specifications. Yes, MDS. MDS, yeah. right? And so again, yeah, you're, to, to your point, she is someone who is forward thinking about this space. That, that is really kind of a bit of the mindset that more public agencies or people within the public agency, public sector need to adopt in order to 
build this bridge towards um, these yeah. private companies. And, and you know, and I, I think you know, L.A. and Salida developed MDS mm-hmm. for Los Angeles, and now it's been adopted. It's being adopted countries by too. not only other countries, but virtually every big metropolitan area in the United States. So I'm very gratified about that. Well, and she will be one of your speakers at Comotion LA, oh, yeah. and yeah. along with along with a, a, a huge amount of speakers. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah. Some of the themes of Comotion LA listeners are, as uh, John alluded to earlier, urban area mobility. There's human-centric design and healthy cities, <laughs> shared transportation and MOS, mobility as a service, freight and urban supply chains, micromobility, personal mobility, and street space, autonomous future, inclusive transportation, cities 3.0, electrification, and new energies. Uh, commotion is going on between November 14th and 15th in downtown L.A., are tickets still available? They are still available. You just have to go to the website, www.commotionla.com. Uh, and listeners, I'll put a link on the episode page there. Um, John, last question here then for you. Yeah. If we are to look, if, if we are to look at what five years down the road looks like in Southern California, specifically Southern California, you go, you know, with all the um, places you've seen, do you recommend any? action items for consumers like myself, somebody who is a driver, um, although I did take the train up here from Orange County. And I commend you for that. Oh, thank yeah. you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but what are some, some, some actionable insights that I can take away or listeners can take away so that we can contribute to what Los Angeles looks like in five years? That's a heavy question. I mean, I think it, it's a heavy it, question. It's a million-dollar question. Too. Yeah, I mean, I think it behooves all of us to understand, to to make an effort to understand what this looming revolution is all about, because it really will be very transformative when you when you radically change how goods and people move around a city. You start toying with the very idea of how we think of space and time and work, et cetera. I mean, all of these things come into play. So, you know, uh, up until fairly recently, I never liked Los Angeles because I didn't understand the geography. So I would land at LAX, you'd rent a car, and you'd have to pull out a goddamn map and figure out, you know. <laughs> what, are you pulling like, out the Thomas ways? Guide? <laughs> yeah, the Thomas Guide. And so I'm talking about a few years ago, okay? So then GPS came around. And that already was a transformation because, you could, okay, I don't even need a map anymore. I, can, I, I will never be lost. Mm-hmm. But the way then you get around changes everything. I mean, if you can get around a city like L.A. efficiently, you will radically change the whole culture of Los Angeles. I mean, the culture, uh, the urban culture is defined by how you move around. And I, you know, I mean, there's a reason why most of our friends are around in the sort of area of the city where we live in, because, you know, we happen to live on the west side. But, you know, I'll think twice about going to visit someone downtown, Uh especially in the evening. It's an hour and a half drive. Uh Forget about it or an hour on the metro. So if suddenly they, that's 15 minutes away, that changes the whole nature of the interaction. 
So a lot of things are going to change very, very quickly. You know, and there, and there, and there's also the law of unintended consequences. It was a terrific yes. article you may have seen this week in the New York Times. I think yesterday on last mile freight delivery in Manhattan. I didn't, I didn't see oh, this one. It's, it's, please, I recommend please share it. more. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Because mm-hmm. what's happening now is as commerce is moving online and we buy our goods online and not in brick and mortar stores. We expect to click something on Amazon, and then that afternoon it shows up at our house. What that means is incredible traffic jams and clogging of streets by trucks that are delivering packages. And you have, uh, for example, buildings in New York, I mean apartment buildings where you have maybe 300 apartments, everyone receiving packages throughout the day. I mean, just the logistic complexity of that. So um, the city is now having to grapple with all of this, you know, uh, these streets becoming uh, essentially sort of logistic centers. Well, and not to mention, like, these streets are also pretty compact already, right? Like, you already have probably street parking, and then you have now your UPS truck or some other big truck that's parked and blocking up some additional valuable roadway. Exactly. So... Anyway, so it's going to be, you know, the mobility revolution is going to be very, it's, it will affect all of our lives and is, for the rest of our lives. Is there any kind of like fis- visual identification that I can maybe associate, that I can look out for? Well, I think, I think it will happen when a majority of the people, of people choose to go around in shared mobility options rather than privately owned cars and that will that will happen and that will not and that won't be as a result of sort of government incentives or taxation but it will just be i think again a cultural choice is you know millennials choose that a sharing mm-hmm. option mm-hmm. it's an option that's going to make such evident economic sense i mean the savings are going to be so massive that you will simply not want to have a car and, well, uh, well yeah. to that end, then, I think... <laughs> so you, it's a difficult sell in L.A., maybe, but... Well, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, yeah. I guess one of the things that, you know, that we both share in the in your Commotion L.A. podcast, as well as my podcast, is we have, we have a similar, or we had the same guest, Sam Baker of yeah. Wonder Mobility, yeah. on the show. And one of the things that I learned about what Sam does, or at least Wonder Mobility does, yeah. is, you know, they have really revolutionize the, the the shared economy or, or carpooling yeah. in places like Manila, Philippines. Right. And now they are starting to spread their wings here yeah. in the United States. So yeah. I can see that happening more and more than this idea of a shared economy yeah. taking place. Well, there's another, you know, there's a company, for example, that's based in Carson City. Culver City, not Carson <laughs> City. <laughs> not Nevada, California. All right, all right. Culver City called Envoy Technologies. And okay. Envoy is great. And their model is they believe that in the future, if you live in an apartment building in a kind of residential complex, it doesn't make sense for you to own a car. Because if you go down to the parking garage of this residential complex, you will have uh, a shared vehicles that are for the use of tenants um, that are electric. There's a plugged in every night. You don't have to own them, but because you're a tenant, you can use them for you know to go to Costco or Walmart or whatever you're going to have to do during the day with a car. 
And uh, Envoy uh, works with those fleet solutions for residential development. I think it's an amazingly powerful model that will, you know, define a lot of urban development going in the future. And I think this speaks back to your previous point of, of private property. I mean, again, I think that's that's also the cultural mindset that will change is the ability for somebody to want to own something. There's benefit in not owning, and that is flexibility. Right, exactly. So. Yeah. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly, as we end every episode. Cheers, prost, lachaim, kipis, nastravi, salud, kampai, mabruk, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastrovie to the customer experience. Well, all right. I want to thank Mr. John Rassant for being a guest on the show. Don't forget, if you want to attend CoMotion LA and get a discount, use promo code WISCO20 at the online checkout. Stay tuned for more upcoming events in which I will provide some additional discounts to listeners, including Women in Automotive Conference, InfraDay, Automobility LA. So stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in to Wisco Weekly. We'll be back next week. Music.